Hello and welcome to Fragments of Fear, a podcast about Jali where we discuss the lesser known titles. My name is Peter Imstov and with me as always my co-host Rachel Esther. How are you doing Rachel? I am not doing too bad. I'm doing all right. I hear that you've been celebrating a certain occasion this week. <laughs> oh my birthday. <laughs> it's, um, yeah it's, it's one of those things that you don't even want to think about when you reach a certain age. Let's just not acknowledge it. No big yeah. fragments of fear celebration. <laughs> So what have you been up to since we last spoke? This is a good question. What have I been up to? Well, things in Scotland are much the same, so I've not really been out and about. I think things have eased a bit down south, but here it's still quite strict. So I'm hoping to meet with another person inside a building in a week or so, but we'll see. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. But yeah, I've just been keeping busy, like watching some films and meeting people in parks and things like that when the weather's not really bad. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, have you seen anything good? Yeah, I, well, I've seen it before, but my husband has never seen Police Story. Ah, so um, nice. he ordered the, it's Eureka, isn't it? The Eureka edition of Police Story 1 and 2. So we oh, yeah. fired two of those. And it was, it was so good watching it again because I've not seen it like since... I was 17 on a crappy VHS quality print so it was so good to see it in that like remastered blu-ray and I really enjoyed it but apart from that I've just been watching some like French crime films and some questionable stuff on Netflix with friends what about you anything decent I've had a few more zoom calls with my friends and we watched Hell Knight the Ranger the slasher from Mm -hmm. last year I think and Night of the Demons but most of all I've been playing The Last of Us 2 these last couple of weeks which has taken up more or less all of my time and brought my movie watching down to like zero more or less yeah that's a problem when you find like a good game it just kind of takes all your entertainment time away from you doesn't it you don't really have time exactly that was good it was excellent yeah i mean it's a good 20 25 hours gameplay out of it so um great game actually excellent storytelling and i really enjoyed that so i'll be heading back to that shortly i think but have to get a few films in first before i before i do that yeah, you don't want to let the side down, do you? You need to keep up with your, <laughs> no. your... I don't know. You probably do you do film challenges. Like, I know some people on Letterboxd, they have this thing where they have to watch a film a day or they have an aim for 500 films a year. No, I haven't really got any aims like that. I just count myself lucky if I manage to watch a decent amount of films in a year. And same thing with, like, challenges for months and stuff. I just watch whatever I fancy. find it really difficult to keep up with stuff like that. How about you? Yeah, I'm the same. I think it just... I'm always wary of it almost becoming like a chore if I feel I've got to watch this type of film on this day or I need to watch this I need to watch another 15 films to hit my target for the month yeah um, yeah I'm not really bothered about challenges I just it's more about like the the quality experience of you seeing a film that blows you away or you really get something out of it yeah. um, for me not that I'm saying that people that do those challenges are trying to like race through films yeah I'm not too bothered if I only watch a few films as long as I get something out of them it can be a good way of finding new stuff if you do certain kinds of um, challenges but I struggle to find time to watch films as it is so I can't really do it at the moment yeah we haven't really got anything exciting to say in terms of new releases because there hasn't been anything announced since the last episode in terms of Jally. It's just obviously the Severin releases, isn't it? Yeah, Demonia, Enigma and the interesting looking um, sort of pseudo documentary biopic F for Fulci, which I haven't seen, but I'm looking forward to checking that out. Yeah, that'd be good. Did you manage to get your orders in? I managed to get my order in in the end. So the Fulci titles and the Franco titles as well. And I think they're opening up tomorrow again. I think I might add one or two things to my order. How about you? Very good. Um, I don't have any money. So <laughs> just kind of like <laughs> put all these things that like everyone's like, oh, no, I need to get my, my titles. I'm like, well, I, I don't have the money to buy them at the minute. So that's good. I can just put it out of my mind. 
and yeah. maybe pick things up at a later date. But I like to get Demonia, but Enigma and stuff, I'm, I've got the 88 films release, so it's not like urgent that I upgrade it straight away. But I would like to see um, the Fulci film, biopic, yeah. whatever it is, documentary. <laughs> Enigma isn't necessarily the title that you need multiple copies of. Yeah, I think it's one of those ones I might pick up the copy, but... I feel like there's probably other things I want to spend my money on, probably more important. Um, but I think it's just summer, isn't it? It's a bit quieter for releases. I saw 88 films, they've acquired a certain number of Italian releases, so we'll see what they turn out to be. Yeah, I saw that as well. Curious to see what that ends up being. Hopefully something good. I, I imagine there'll be some repeats. It feels like we're getting quite a few repeats at the minute. Yeah, between the different regions, there seems to be a few of those. Still keeping my fingers crossed for Arrow having a few Italian releases for October, November and December because they've only released one Italian title so far this year. Really? It's only, I suppose that, that must be right. Yeah. If you look at Eurocult altogether, it's three. It's the two Laras titles uh-huh. and um, Beyond the Door. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think if something gets announced, it'll probably be for like the October slate. I, yeah. I think that there's something coming, but I've not seen news about it yet so i'm just waiting to see we'll see what happens so before we discuss the film we'd just like to give a special thank you to our new patrons who have very kindly pledged their support to fragments of fear so thank you to ian coglin s christian soderstrom oni babadook and spencer seams and again thank you to everyone who continues to support us via patreon we've got some exciting patreon exclusive content on the way so stay tuned for that and if you're interested in listening to our bonus content and want to pledge your support to the podcast you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash fragments pod for more details. As always, we just want to warn you that this podcast will contain spoilers, so consider yourself pre-warned. So which film is that we're going to discuss on this episode? So today we're discussing another film from the Shallows Boom period, Tonino Ricci's 1971 film Cross Current, entitled Omicido Perfecto a Termin de Legge in Italian, which roughly translates to Perfect Murder by Law or Legally Perfect Murder. Purtroppo c'è un grumo di sangue che preme sul cervello. Sul cervello? Sì. E preme sulla zona della memoria in modo tale da comprometterla molto seriamente. C'è una sola possibilità. Un intervento molto difficile. Difficile? Fino a che punto? Direi che dipende da un certo numero di fattori estranei e dall'abilità tecnica del neurochirurgo. Diciamo dalle 4 alle 10 probabilità su 100. So Cross Current is an example of an Italian-Spanish co-production, and co-productions between the two countries were fairly common during this era. Many Jali were made with Spanish financing, and you'll often find a Spanish element to these films. Beyond financing, you'll find that examples of Italian-Spanish co-produced Jali often feature Spanish cast members and crew, and were sometimes partially filmed in Spain. Films like The Fourth Victim, Death Walks at Midnight, Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion, A Lizard in a Woman's Skin, Murder by Music, Perversion Story, Cold Eyes of Fear, The Great Swindle and Marta could all be considered as co-productions between Italy and Spain some with more overtly Spanish elements than others. Of course, we then have thriller films that are often considered as Spanish, shall we? The likes of Leon Klimovsky's films and so forth, which I think is a topic for another time when we might explore at a later date. So despite talking in past episodes about Shelley being typically Italian productions, there is a certain amount of crossover with other countries, predominantly Spain, but also the likes of West Germany and with films such as What Have You Done to Solange and The Bird of the Crystal Plumage. But despite Cross Current being an example of an Italian-Iberian production, it feels fairly 
Italian in nature compared to some of the other offerings mentioned. Cross Current was released in 1971 as part of the Glut of Jali produced during the short-lived period. Despite the film's release post-word of the Crystal Plumage, Cross Current mostly resembles Umberto Lenzi's Carol Baker Jali of the 1960s that themselves were influenced by Clouseau's Diabolique. Yet Ritchie clearly takes elements of the new Argento-styled thriller here and mixes the two styles of thrillers with varying results. Cross Current, like many Jali of the period, has elements of the gothic horror which are particularly evident in the film's suspenseful scenes, but the focus here is very much on the trappings of the bourgeoisie, with an Argento-style element in terms of Marco Breda's amnesia. In terms of Jali of the period, Cross Current certainly doesn't break the mould, but it does demonstrate the shift between the popular sexy Jali of the 1960s with the more Baroque psychological offerings of the 1970s. The film was directed by Teodoro Tonino Ricci, who was born in Rome on October 23rd, 1927. He's a director that there's not a whole lot written about, but he got his start in the business working as a second unit director. And by 1969, he he had about a dozen features or so as an assistant director on his CV, including Mario Bava's Eric the Conqueror and Romolo Guerreri's $10,000 for a Massacre. He made his own directorial debut in 1969 with the Klaus Kinski and George Hilton starring war film The Liberators or War Fever, a film that he'd co-written with Piero Regnoli. Cross Current was his second feature and it was based on a story by Aldo Crudo and the script was co-written by Crudo and Ritchie together with Arpa de Riso, Jose Maria Forker and Rafael Asconza, the two latter being responsible for the script to the Spanish-Italian co-production In the Eye of the Hurricane. I'll return to him a little bit later on and talk about what he did later on in his career. That'll be interesting to hear actually. Sometimes, yeah, if there's not a lot of like background information about a director, it's you can glean a lot of things just from the trajectory of their career. Yeah, exactly. Looking forward to that. And you always manage to sum up the film really well in your synopsis, so maybe we should go ahead and do that. Thank you. Yeah, I'll just deliver a quick synopsis for the film. Wealthy industrialist Marco Breda is taking part in a speedboat race when a mechanism on his boat fails, throwing him from the vehicle. The injured Marco is taken to a nearby clinic and his wife Monica is informed of the severity of his accident. Marco has suffered a blood clot on the brain and Monica must give the doctor's permission to operate, otherwise Marco will spend the rest of his life as an invalid. Monica gives the doctors the go-ahead and the operation proves successful, however the after-effects of the accident have rendered Marco unable to retain some of his memories from before the accident. Marco and Monica return to their seaside villa in order to recuperate via doctor's orders. Whilst resting, Marco is joined by friends Terry and Tommy and the group return to normalcy. However, that night, Marco finds himself disturbed and confused when a tree in the garden triggers an unsettling memory. Later that evening, Marco's phoned by an ex-gardener who urgently wants to meet to share some important information. Marco arranges to meet him the next day, but that night, the gardener is murdered by a mysterious assailant in a nearby graveyard. When the police arrive to question Marco over the nature of the phone call, Marco finds himself thrown into a series of murders and double crossings. Is Marco somehow responsible, or is something more sinister at play involving the ones he trusts the most? Great stuff. There we go. So Marco Breda is played by Philippe Leroy, and Leroy was born as Philippe-Marie-Paul Leroy Bouliot on October 15th, 1930 in Paris, where he grew up with his older brother Pierre, who would go on to be a politician. Philippe joined the army in the regiment of paratroopers and did tours of duty in both Indochina and Algeria in the 1950s. He earned several prestigious honours such as the Légion d'honneur and rose to the rank of captain. His breakthrough role as an actor came in Jacques Becker's Le Trou in 1960, a prison breakout drama, and he started getting offers from Italy and became an in-demand actor in the country 
country where he also resided. But he continued working in France throughout his career, including roles in, for example, Luc Besson's Nikita. He's got a very solid genre cinema CV with starring roles in Paolo Cavara's The Wild Eye, Femna Reden's or The Laughing Woman, uh, Milano Caliber 9, Lenz's Milano Roventi and Manaya. He didn't appear in all that many thrillers, Cross Currents and Brescia's Naked Girl Kill in the Park, as well as a few Jallo adjacent films being the notable exceptions. He's got a daughter called Philippine Leroy Bouliot, who became an actress against the advice of her father. It's interesting because when you see him in films, like he pops up a lot of films in this kind of time period and he always seemed older. So I kind of wondered what he did before. Yeah. No, obviously not wondered, wondered enough to actually Google it. But <laughs> 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 it's interesting yeah, to know that's what his back. Next, we have Elga Andersen as Monica Breda. German actress Elga Andersen was born Helga Heimann in Dortmund, Germany in 1935. As a child, she attended ballet school from the age of six, but as an adult, she instead decided upon a career away from dance, moving to Paris, age 19, to become a model. During this period, she gained notoriety for her romantic involvement with celebrities such as Gary Cooper and Prince Moulay Abdallah of Morocco. She made her cinematic debut in 1957 in the French film Les Collagiennes, directed by André Unibel, in which she was credited as Elga Hyman. In 1958, she was cast in a minor role in Otto Preminger's Bonjour Tristesse, and it was Preminger who suggested Elga take the stage name Elga Anderson, which she subsequently became known as. Anderson's first leading role was in the 1960 film Brazilian Rhapsody, and over the course of the 1960s and 1970s, she worked on numerous productions, primarily European, often as a romantic interest or seductress. Anderson is probably best known to international audiences for her role in the 1971 Steve McQueen film Le Mans. The pair were rumoured to have embarked on an affair during filming. Outside of acting, Anderson had a short spell in the 1960s as a singer. And in 1978, she married the American millionaire Peter Gimbel in her second marriage. The couple dedicated themselves to diving with an interest in diving expeditions to the sunken luxury ocean liner of the Andrea Doria off the coast of Nantucket. The couple made documentaries about their diving expeditions and Anderson served as producer on 1984's The Andrea Doria, The Final Chapter. Anderson sadly died at age 59 in 1994 of cancer. Her husband had died seven years prior and upon Anderson's death, the couple's ashes were interred in the wreck of the Andrea Doria. Blimey. Quite interesting, that ending with the diving expeditions. It seemed quite like a strange... Definitely. Yeah, and also with Cross Current having this kind of nautical feel to it, yeah. it seemed like a strange yeah, coincidence. And there's so much we don't know about these actors, or at least I don't know about these actors. So always interesting to hear more what, what went on in their life. Absolutely. And like we always say, it's just such a shame because so many of these people die without their stories really being told. Yeah. And you can do loads of research and look for articles and things, but there's often not much there. It's not going to be the same, is it? No, unfortunately. Ivan Razumov was born Ivan Derasimovic in 1938 to Serbian parents. In 1938, shortly before his birth, his parents moved to Trieste in Italy, where the family settled, welcoming Ivan, followed by his sister Rada Razumov and brother Milovan. Rada Razumov would also enter into the acting profession, appearing in The Good, the Bad and the Ugly, Cat and Nine Tales and Baron Blood. Upon graduating high school, Razumov completed his military service and moved to Rome to embark on his further education. In 1964, he graduated from university and honed his craft as an actor, taking acting classes in Rome whilst working on photoromancy. During this period, he was spotted by Mario Bava, who cast him in his 1965 science fiction film, Planet of the Vampires. Razumov's role in Bava's film led to further work in Italian genre cinema, which led to a fruitful career in the 60s, 70s and early 1980s. In the 1960s, he appeared in numerous westerns, 
His rugged good looks and resemblance to Franco Nero led to castings in the unofficial Django films Don't Wait Django, Shoot, and If You Want to Live, Shoot, as the titular character. Sixties also saw roles in action-adventure films, dramas, and a spellbinding turn in Damiano Damiani's The Witch. Razumov appeared in numerous chalets in the early 1970s, playing villainous characters with a plum. He collaborated with Sergio Martino on numerous occasions, appearing in Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, All the Colours of the Dark, and Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. As well as appearing in Martino's chalet, Razumov appeared in other Italian thrillers of the period, including Umberto Lenzi's Spasmo and Scavolini's A White Dress for Marielle. Razumov worked across genres and found further success and recognition in Italy for his work in the cannibal film, appearing in the likes of The Man from Deep River and Eaten Alive. In the 1970s, he appeared in Plitzioteki, such as Colt 38 Special Squad and Romart to the Teeth. He also made appearances in the popular Emmanuel series, as well as science fiction fair such as Aldo Lado's The Humanoid in 1979. Razumov reunited with Bava on 1977's Shock, and during the 1980s he found work in television productions alongside genre fair such as the post-apocalyptic The Atlantis Raiders and Ruggiero Diodato's Body Count. Razumov retired from acting in 1987 and later went on to work for a publishing house in Rome, where he worked up until his death in 2003 after a tragic motorcycle accident. He's such a great presence in all the films that he appears in. If most Jallo fans would, would name their top 10 actors, he'd probably be on that list, don't you think? Absolutely. And I think that's quite interesting. Like you say, he's one of those people that fans really enjoy because in terms of some of the other actors in the genre, he doesn't have loads of screen time. He often is quite fleeting in his appearances. Um, yeah. He's never really the protagonist, but I think that says quite a lot about him as an actor that he kind of steals a lot of the scenes he's in and a lot of the films just yeah by his kind of mere presence yeah i really like him as an actor i think he's definitely one of my favorites yeah same here you can't i, I can't not like ivan Razumov. i don't think i haven't heard a single person that has got anything <laughs> sort of against him he's he's excellent yeah. Last up among the main players, Terry Povani, who's played by Rosanna Gianni, born Marta Susanna Gianni Paxo in a film of Italian descent in Buenos Aires, Argentina, on February 27th, 1938. She'd worked in TV as a hostess when she moved to Italy in 1962 to work as a model and made her film debut in 1963 in Schwambosch's Sol Divano. She appeared in a multitude of roles, but mostly Sean Fair, and she's most known for fans for her roles in Just Frank. Franco's Two Undercover Angels and Kiss Me Monster with Janine Renault, Amanda Dosario's Fangs of the Living Dead and Jose Maria Forquez in The Eye of the Hurricane. She would also appear in Paul Nash's Hunchback of the Morgue and Count Dracula's Greatest Love. She worked mainly in Spain during her career, appearing in films up until 1980 when she retired from the business for quite a few years before returning again in 1997. I think that's it. There's a secondary character I feel that maybe we should mention as well, Tommy Brown, who's played by Franco Russell, uh, another well-known face for all lovers of Italian genre film. Russell was born in Naples as Domenico Urbana in 1925 and appeared in over 100 films during his career, which spanned from the late 1950s until 1985 when he passed away at the age of 60. And Jada lovers might recognise him from films such as The Devil is Seven Faces, The Eye in the Labyrinth, Naked Girl Killed in the Park, AAA Masseuse, Good Looking Offers Her Services, Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye, and Jada 
Poliziotesky hybrid calling all police cars. Right. So sh- should we start discussing the film? Yeah. Let's get into it. The film starts with a montage of Marco at the docks where he's preparing for the fateful speedboat race that leads to his accident. And in this sequence, it's kind of established that he's estranged or at least in poor in a poor marriage with his wife, Monica, and that he's good friends with his racing partner, Bert, and his opponent, Tommy. I don't know about you, but the speedboat race is rather feels like a rather poorly realized sequence it's quite drawn out and not very effectively edited and especially the actual accident which just involves shaking the camera and having somebody jump off the boat really yeah i think it's quite unclear what happens and i feel maybe we don't talk about editing enough in the podcast um I'm say that more on my part because I think sometimes I overlook it in favor of other things but I think you've really hit the nail on the head when you talk about the editing being quite poor here because it's supposed to be the scene with like lots of excitement that culminates in this horrific accident but that doesn't really come across and I think overall the opening of the film with that you know the the night before that happens oh yeah just before it is so much more engaging and then we cut to the speedboat race which should be engaging but just there's something that it languishes like you say it's overly long um, and not yeah. clear what's going on. The actual build up to the race is, works fairly well, I mm-hmm. think, which is which plays out during the credits. But once they get to the actual race, I mean, you need to be able to tell which boat is which and get that sense of speed and danger in it that is kind of off. Yeah, like you say, you don't get a sense that there's imminent danger. It doesn't feel like high stakes enough. And even then, looking back on the film, I'm trying to figure out how the mechanics of that accident occurred. It's just in, in terms of like Marco's initial accident, I suppose the problem is how could you technically orchestrate someone having an accident that would result in the amnesia that Marco experiences? <laughs> yeah, it, and it seems like Bert sabotaged the boat in order to maim Marco rather than kill him because yeah. the accident is the catalyst for Marco um, handing over a power of attorney to Bert. Like, I suppose Bert anticipates the accident so he's able to throw himself over overboard that's what happens right it seems like quite a dangerous thing to do to put yourself on a boat where you know there's going to be an accident yeah because i suppose you know that poses a certain amount of risk in itself so i suppose in a way the scenarios and the set setup of the film and marco's accident is a bit tenuous because to get that outcome it's like how would you get that outcome from that accident yeah there's no way to to orchestrate that actually happening but regardless of how they do it the accident as you as you mentioned in the synopsis results in marco suffering the traumatic brain injury and marco's then told by his doctor that he needs peace and quiet and that any strain on him can invoke a a dangerous state of neurosis so when he returns back home of course marco keeps having these headaches and these flashbacks of that tree in the in the garden and memories of somebody falling it's a setup ripe for a close relative or a, a friend or a loved one to sort of um, conspire against him or, or gaslighting them into thinking that they're crazy or exposing them to shock so grave that they'll go mad or even die. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of the setup, it's like you said, it's a bit tenuous in terms of how the accident occurs, but that setup of him having amnesia and all these people around him that he supposedly trusts is that's quite a quintessential jago trope isn't it yeah. more along the lines of argento's thrillers i suppose like obviously the conspiring is more kind of late, um the late 60s offerings but psychoanalytical like psych- memory loss affliction seems to be a bit more like kind of post murder the crystal plumage because it's made in 1971 i think a lot of people just assume that it's going to be and it was released post the bird with the crystal plumage assume that it's going to be inspired by Argento but as you've said it, it finds more inspiration from the Diabolik so technically it's probably more from the Luciano Martino school of Giallo 
than the Argento one. Absolutely. I mean, you can see, you know, those like slight fragments of Argento's Jali in here, but I mean, that might be a bit of a coincidence or just something that they've added in last minute or tried to kind of crowbar in. But definitely, if you're looking for an Argento style thriller, this isn't going to be it. It's much more in the vein of Umberto Lenzi's work. Um, let's yeah. say like Luciano Martino's um, productions. It said Cross Current contains a fairly typical trope of the Jalo with a character, Marco Breda, who's unable to remember the events prior to his voting accident. And the film hinges on this proposition that Marco may be responsible for the murders um, that occur in the film, but seemingly can't remember committing them, and the reason as to why. As a character, I suppose Marco Breda's fairly unsympathetic. He embarks on an affair, he seems at times aggressive, he drinks copious amounts of J&B, maybe not such a bad thing, <laughs> depending on who you speak to, um, but he's clearly a man troubled and disturbed by his inability to remember his life post-accident. And his frustrations at his situation are often palpable. There's almost a constant state of confusion that occurs throughout the film as both Marco and we, the audience, seek to understand what's happening and the significance of certain things like the tree, which you kind of, they focus so much on the tree throughout the film. It's like, what does the tree kind of symbolize? I, I don't know if that completely yeah. works, to be honest. But yeah, this idea of the fragmented memory, which we encounter time and time again in the shadow is perhaps not as effective in Cross Current as it is in other films, but still much of the intrigue and suspense in the film comes from this mystery of Marco's forgotten memories and propels the film um, forwards. It's just a shame that it's sometimes a little muddled as an idea. Yeah. Um, it doesn't always hold together, I would say. No, like you say, the memory loss theme has been used before. I mean, we've we've discussed Duccio Tassari's puzzle, but unlike in that film, Marco's it's kind of a role that's sort of more traditionally female, um, yeah. yeah, I can certainly see that. I mean, like, like you say, we, we talked about um, Tessari's puzzle in episode four. Um, and yeah, we, in both films, I suppose we have this protagonist who suffered memory loss, who's trying to decipher what happened prior to the amnesia um, and if they were culpable of murder. Um, but I think puzzle veers more into that arena of char- a character study and more about relationships, where I think, like you say, it's here in... Um, in cross current it feels more like a more like a traditional thriller it's not so driven by marco breda's character um, and there's less no. of a focus on him and his and the relationships in his life and more at the mystery at the heart of the film and then of course that mystery is revealed to be financially motivated so we don't have those outlandish reveals that we might have in another film but i, I never really thought about like like what you said about it being a female role if i could see it as such one could watch this film and you could potentially wonder if Marco's responsible for the murders or not. But mm-hmm. to me, it feels fairly evident early on that you know, somebody's trying to manipulate him. And usually these roles are reserved for females perceived as sort of the weaker sex that you might be able to manipulate. You wouldn't normally get that for a male character in a 1970s genre film. Yeah, no, that's very true. And I think with that kind of I think it's Monica that says at one point in the film like she kind of questions where he was that night and Marco starts to think was I responsible but I feel even though that's put into the script and even though it's positioned to the audience I don't feel like for the reasons you mentioned that Marco seems like a credible villain of the, you don't think he's going to kind of go down that path and and like you say his memory loss makes him susceptible to exploitation and manipulation and we have numerous characters who seek to take advantage of Marco's affliction for their own nefarious reasons. So it's like the cast of characters here are positioned as puppet masters and Marco is this kind of weak man who lacks agency. Despite him coming across as an unsympathetic, which I said earlier, which I don't mean he's like really unsympathetic, but he's a bit of a sad sack. 
Um, but he's kind of someone. <laughs> sorry, Marco Brady, a sad sack. Um, but yeah, he's someone. At times, you feel like he's almost someone to be pitied. And prior to his accident, he was a successful factory owner with a, a love of speedboat racing and a man who is always in control. Um, but that control's taken away from him, and characters often undermine his decisions or question them post accident, which adds to the sense of his life not being his own anymore and this lack of control. And we even have two scenes which I find quite interesting, where Marco's effectively emasculated, with both Terry and Monica rejecting his sexual advances. Um, And when we learn of Terry and Monica's desire for Bert, it adds to the sense of pity for Marco, who feels quite conservative and almost passionless. And you can see why the women would prefer to be with Bert, who's this kind of enigmatic, desirable man with his shirt like unbuttoned a bit too far. (laughs) That's all it takes, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, that's all it seems to take. But yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I was writing my notes and I kind of thought, oh, Mark was quite emasculated. And I never thought like what, what you said, that maybe it feels more like a female character for that reason. So I can certainly see that here. I'm not sure if I meant for those reasons, but I just think that this kind of role is normally reserved for a female character. Yeah, because women are almost like the weaker sex and easier to manipulate and a bit more um you know like acting on their whims where marco's supposed to be this you know factory owner who's in control and is an alpha male i suppose but then i guess it's the the memory loss that makes him vulnerable yeah in a way that he wouldn't be but that's the problem you don't really know who marco was beforehand like you're told he's a successful factory owner that he loves speedboat racing but you don't get too much of a window into him or his relationship with the women no the the only thing you see is that short exchange with uh with monica before t- so you know that their marriage is at least on the rocks when she comes down to the to the boatyard before the race yeah that kind of frosty reception so you obviously know something's happened it's very frosty reception and i guess that's another mystery isn't it it's like what happened between monica and marco to kind of elicit that response um, especially when yeah. another woman comes up afterwards and he's all charming and nice to her, but he's so frosty with his own wife. Yeah. Should we get into the relationships then in the film? How we think Marco and the other characters interact and the believability of their relationships? Yeah, let's. I suppose like much of what happens in the film hinges on these fabricated relationships in which um, Bert and Terry manipulate Monica and Marco into believing they forged a romantic connection. For me personally, though, I think the relationship between Marco and Terry is a bit tenuous. I keep saying tenuous in this episode. I'll try and stop saying it. But um, I think it's just based on this idea of opposites attracting. I think there's that scene where they're sitting in the living room look, like looking at vinyl and they're trying to find this common ground, but they obviously don't like the same music. And then they realise that they both love boats and they bond over that. But yeah, I don't know. I I couldn't quite understand the connection here. So I felt when Terry was revealed to be, you know, in on this plan with her with her husband Bert and didn't really love or have any affection for Marco, I was like, well, yeah, because it doesn't come across at all. I don't think it's positioned in a very believable way, their relationship, and it seems quite sudden. And he's yeah. like, I need you, but you feel like you don't have enough to to really believe that claim oh why he falls for her so quickly no yeah and because of the memory loss as well he seems to have i mean he's obviously not in the same bad place with his with monica as he was before the accident so it does seem a little bit sudden that new relationship yeah i think maybe that could easily have been solved with just a few extra bits of dialogue or some sort of scene or establishing that something happened with the characters before yeah. a bit more detail i mean i'm just nitpicking a bit because i know like when we talk about these films it's not everything has to be explained but i think even by the standards of the shadow i just felt a bit like well of course it just made it too obvious to me that she was kind of a villainess i agree with you in that it's not about nitpicking or finding plot holes it's about how well 
well the film works and i i don't have any problems in like suspending my belief or and overlooking these things if it feels like it works but like you say it feels it feels a bit too rushed here to see those two heading into a relationship and you can sort of tell that she's got an angle and she's not falling for him properly and that's obviously kind of hurt for the setup yeah because we have we do have the time to explore that relationship more to build on it but it does seem very rushed and it seems rushed in favor of other things that probably weren't ne- weren't needed in the film i don't know if that's the case of too many screenwriters and things being a bit mixed up messed up um yeah that relationship didn't quite work for me i think we don't really know but it could be a consequence of them trying to get the film out fairly quickly following the the sort of jello boom you never know what's behind it if it's just if it's lazy writing or if it's if it's a rushed production or whatever it is but like you say there are problems with some of, of the choices made with the script here yeah just tweaks that could be made maybe even minor tweaks that would just make it hang together a bit better i mean i'm not i, I do enjoy the film i just feel like there's things that could have been improved upon and it wouldn't have maybe taken too much to improve on them but yeah if you have you know time constraints then that's easier said than done and easy to say in hindsight I think it's it's a problem as well of the whole film that they pack in lots of twists and turns in the in the, in the script it's just a case of sometimes Richie seems to overplay his hand so the twists and turns in the film aren't exactly surprising because they seem fairly well telegraphed or there's not enough yeah. ambiguity in the film um, and again that's probably something that just a bit of time and, and a read like another draft or something would have fixed i mean it does feel a little bit like we've already mentioned the le diabolique influence here a film that obviously influenced for example so sweet so perverse which we've talked about because there are some similarities between so sweet and perverse and this in terms of the setup and how they're going to work this con but they've thrown in even more elaborate things that needs to happen in order for this scheme to um, to work which makes it feel yeah it makes it feel a little bit too elaborate yeah I think as well yeah because when I messaged you earlier about us talking about the film tonight I think I said you know almost like us discussing the plot trying to make sense of certain aspects of it because it's not a plot that you feel like oh that completely works on finishing the film and then even returning to it there's again we're not trying to nitpick but bits that might not hang together well or like I like I have my notes when we podcast, but I also have my notes of just like on the film more like loose, rough notes. And I just ended like my notes with lots of questions. I almost kind of wanted to um, put to you to see what your thoughts were on them. And there's just maybe a yeah. bit too many questions. I felt like I feel like I shouldn't have to ask this many questions <laughs> or kind of ask you to like tell me what your interpretation of certain things were. I know. I think because yeah. like, we both watched this film on like the the version of Cross Current or the the versions of Cross Current that are currently circulating are very poor quality or fairly poor quality. Um, not just the visuals but the sound. I don't always hear yeah. the best at times. So I kind of felt myself like what? Like I think there was a few bits where I kind of watched them several times, and I don't know if it was just because I couldn't hear it very well. And I missed yeah. like a key bit of information. So I feel again, like we always say a remaster um, would really benefit a film like this. Um, it certainly would. You can tell there's a better looking film in there than what the current transfer suggests. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's it's a nice looking film, like which I'll get into later. And um, there's some really nice visuals here. Um, but again, with the print being the way it is, and when you have a lot of like scenes taking place at night, it's not easy to see the detail. So we've spoken a little bit about Marco and Terry, and it's not long before Monica walks in on them in a situation where it's fairly obvious that they're more than friends. 
it's not long before the three are in a struggle where a gun goes off and Monica goes down. Terry checks and finds her dead and suggests that they get rid of the water, throwing throwing the body off Seagull's head where the water is deep and there's a strong cross current. Name check of the film. Uh, yeah, I like that when the actual title shows up somewhere in in the film. Same, I'm always going to want to raise a glass of what I'm drinking and be like, yes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you managed to get it in there. I know, it's quite satisfying like, to have that. Um... That's the first sort of twist. There has been, is it two or three murders before that? Is it, I think it's two murders before that, isn't it? We have the murder of Amsante and then we have the murder of... Tommy. Tommy. Yeah, That's Tommy's murder one. is before that, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Tommy's murder is quite, like, again, when I'm talking about having a remaster of this film... I feel one of the things that would benefit is that's a scene that I rewound a couple of times is um, Tommy's death where it's like the entrails come out. Yeah. I wasn't sure if I was seeing that correctly just because it's so, it was so dark. Um, and it's not a, it's not particularly violent as a film, I would say, apart from maybe two scenes, that one and another one. Like we've said a couple of times now that looking at the plot with, with the mind games and trying to make somebody lose their mind seems very much like a 60s jello, but there are some tropes that firmly places it as a as a 70s jello because the murder of Tommy, as well as some of the subjective point of view, sort of dates it as a 70s film rather than a 60s one, I'd say. Yeah, I agree. I feel like those elements, I don't know if it's it was done on purpose, but it certainly feels like it's trying to borrow from the the new Italian thriller of the early 1970s. Um, and that's why they, they come as quite surprising, those moments, because most of the film does play out like those sexy kind of shally of the 1960s. So when it hits yeah. like that, you think, oh, yeah, like I said, I was surprised when I rewatched it because I completely forgot about that. There's certainly the goriest murder in the film. That, so. Overall, I would say in these films, especially early 1970s, you don't expect to see anything other than blood. So to see kind of organs is surprising. Certainly is. Sorry, I feel like I've uh, just uh, taken us off course from what we were talking about. <laughs> you were saying about the, the two murders prior to what happens at Siegel's head with the body yeah. of Monica or the supposed body of Monica being thrown off the cliffside. Yeah, and then the mind game starts. All of a sudden she appears yet again. Where It's when the police are visiting, isn't it? Yeah, they come in. They say, I think because he comes home and then the maid says, oh, Mrs. Breda's upstairs. And he's thinking, what? And then he goes up, looks outside and somebody's getting into a car. And then when the inspector comes the next day, he says something like, oh, Mrs. Breda's here now. And then she walks in and it's that big, big shocking moment. And that's when he takes off in the car. And plummets to his death, or so we believe. Did you believe that Marco um, had died in that moment? I know it's like asking you to go back a long time. Yeah, I think I probably did because I think I saw this after So Sweet, So Perverse. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. Where, and where it's kind of similar in the way in the way that uh, Tratignon is killed. So it didn't seem unreasonable to me that he would have been killed off. How about you? Yeah, it's part of the problem, isn't it? Because once you see like a few films of this in this of this nature, then you start to just anticipate what's going to happen. So I think maybe my reaction or your reaction would be different to someone that's maybe not familiar with that style of thriller. Um, I think I did. I did think he would survive it. I wasn't sure how, but just. I think it was just purely because there was 20 minutes or something left of the film. And I thought like knowing kind of how some of these films work and the twists that have already been, I feel like Marco's probably not at his end quite yet. Although again, I'm not going to say the word beginning with T, but you have to think, well, okay, yeah, Marco somehow managed to throw himself out of the car without anyone noticing. Speaking about Monica's supposed death by gunshots and then her being put in in the car and being pushed off the cliff. I mean, that was another quite elaborate way of making him 
think he was a part of accidentally killing his wife. Yeah, the two women would have had to have orchestrated it. And I'm just trying to think, like, on the spot about what the two women would gain from Marco's death as collaborators. Would they have split the money as a three? Yeah, now that you mention it. No, now that I mention it, because I'm thinking, obviously Monica was having an affair with Bert, and obviously Terry was married to Bert, but they didn't know. I presume they didn't know about each other's involvement with Bert. No, and and Mark had already written over the company to the power of attorney to Bert. So at that time, Bert had power of attorney for the company. Is was it just because of love that Monica did it? I mean, it could have been just yeah, like it could have been out of love. But then you think, well, how could they have collaborated as a as a three? on that without knowing about each other's involvement with Bert like why for sure for Bert and Terry they wouldn't need to involve Monica at all at that stage unless they needed her to kind of be complicit but what would she gain she obviously she would gain financial so maybe like I don't know maybe Terry thought oh she'll get money not thinking about how Bert factored in there or maybe sorry because she knew she knew that Bert was playing off with Monica it's just Monica didn't know that Bert and Terry were married yeah yeah, these are the questions like that are posed to the end of my my notes. It's just trying to work that out. Sorry, we're almost like trying to work them out on live on the podcast. But again, you kind of have to just accept it, don't you? It doesn't quite work. Again, if you compare it to So Sweet, So Perverse, when there's a similar setup, you accept that straight away and you don't have to sort of, you don't wonder in the same way as you do here. Yeah, you just have a few questions here about how that kind of came to be. And again, I don't want to nitpick. Yeah. There's just a few moments where I'm like, oh, it's just it's just a bit of a coincidence, isn't it? Like, maybe I'm getting this wrong. But when Terry and Marco go to the nightclub, I'm sure prior to going to the nightclub, Monica's like, oh, I'm going to bed. And then they go off to the nightclub and then they're dancing and then Monica and Bert turn up. Yeah. And she calls her a bitch. And you think, well, like, how, how did they turn up at the nightclub? I mean, they could have just like, it could have been planned, but it just seems a bit strange. Yeah. Um, maybe that's just me I just thought it was quite odd again it's things being orchestrated I suppose you can just chalk up to their you know like up to no good in the background making sure these things happen but it just happens really a bit haphazard it doesn't really hold up all that well looking at it properly you sort of have to go with a flow here if you're gonna really enjoy this yeah because it is an enjoyable film and I do enjoy it but yeah when I start to think about how did that work or what was going on there then maybe it feels a bit yeah Maybe not as successful in terms of it's, it doesn't rely on a on a solid base of writing, does it? No, um, and this is like you said before, like the difference between a Gestaldi uh, script and you know somebody else's. <laughs> if he did this, it would be a lot more tight. Well, I think you know people always say, "Oh, Jali aren't supposed to make sense," and I, I I understand where they're coming from. And I'm not saying that you should nitpick everything. Again, I'll stop saying nitpick, but I think. Yeah, there are people like Gestaldi that have solid scripts. So to say that no other film should be examined in that way feels a bit, I don't know, it doesn't seem right to me. I think we can still ask these questions um, about it. It it needs to hold up for some kind of internal logic, I think. Otherwise, it risks losing the the audience or the, the viewer. So we've we touched a little bit on um, on the previous set pieces with Santi's murder and Tommy's murder and Santa's mother later on being strangled but the foremost memorable set piece happens towards the end where Monica confronts Bert and Terry in, in this white room with both Monica and Terry dressed in the same color she shoots Bert and then 
Terry, who dies in, in slow motion, spinning around, so the blood splatters all the walls of the room. It's a scene that invokes the murder of Evelyn Stewart in Black Dress for Mariali. No spoilers for those of you who haven't seen it because it's shown very early on. Or Argento's Tenebrae, I suppose. Yeah. Um, night, I, the Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave was another one just for the kind of stark white interiors and oh yeah uh, there's yeah a few films i think people naturally always say tenebrae but like you say like white dress is another one that kind of evokes that comparison at least with the white dress and the slow motion yeah absolutely so that's at least to me that's the by far the most memorable set piece in the film it's it's quite beautifully done absolutely it's really i think the standout moment in the film i think you'd be hard pressed to kind of find another example um, of a scene that kind of works as well as that one um, yeah. And I like the way it plays out like a Western when you've got the close-ups on their eyes, the extreme close-ups on the eyes of Monica and um, oh, yeah. before there's the shootout. I mean, I kind of feel almost like it's, a, you know, with Rasmus' background in the Western, it feels almost like a kind of nod to that. Um, yeah. I think it reminded me a bit strange vice of Mrs. Ward in that respect with the shootout in the desert. Um, yeah. So that's like a nice touch as well there. Well, Richie, of course, he did a, um, he did a few Westerns. Yeah, so he, probably, did, yeah. uh, he did a karate-themed one, and he did Western with children as well. Yeah. So you kind of feel like maybe that's his influence as a director yeah. as well. Um, but yeah, there's something quite shocking about the scene, not only like visually, but also the fact that Monica kills her former friend and lover in cold blood. Um, and it feels as stark and cold as the interior around her. And you're kind of prior to that scene, you've got that reveal with Terry and Bert. And I think it's probably fair to say that most people that watch this film for the first time will suspect that Ivan Rasimov's character is involved just because it's Ivan Rasimov. Um, so it's great to see his dastardly plans revealed here. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, he doesn't appear too much in Cross Current. I mean, he's more of a background character at times. I mean, he's not a minor. He he's, I'm not, like, he's not a minor character, obviously. But like in the first half of the film, he's not too present. He just kind of lurks in the background, which is always a bit of a clue that someone's involved. But he's just really effective as this debonair Machiavellian character, and it's easy to believe that Monica would be taken in by him, and that he could play all these women off against each other. He's usually got a sort of more overt, threatening role than he does here, because he comes off as quite sympathetic and um, a good friend of Marco's. And in Martino's films, he's usually got more of a threatening presence. Yeah, and it's nice for him to be a bit more ambiguous as a character. As I said, we we kind of know he's going to be a villain, but he does have that more of a suave angle to him here, whereas opposed to like in yeah. all the colors. Of, well, he he does to a certain extent. In um, Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, but in some of his other roles, he's less so. Yeah, you see, he's a bit yeah. more disheveled and threatening. You mentioned um, Santi Fosca's mother um, yeah. there, and I think it's always nice to point out those comic relief moments in the shadow. And then the cross current, those moments are courtesy of Liana Del Balzo, who plays Santi Fosca's mother. And you might not know her name, but you'll perhaps recognize uh, Del Balzo from her small role in Dario Argento's Deep Red as Elvira the Maid. Um, and in Cross Current, Fosky's mother meets with Marco about her son's death, trying to convince Marco that she's finally des- financially destitute and needs money in exchange for information about her son's dealings prior to his death. Um, showing her shrewd manipulative side, she taps Marco for as much money as possible and then promptly leaves for the pub where she gets rat arsed on her financial gains. And when she's tossed out at uh, closing time, we get this brilliant scene where she walks into a pole and apologises to it before uh, commenting on how skinny the person is. Um, we've all we've all been there i think (laughs) yeah there's not like you know like compared to some of the other films we've talked about like death carries a cane that comedic streaks kind of present throughout but here it's just really contained to the scenes with the mother 
um, yeah. which are kind of like concentrated in one part of the film, but they're quite nice. I like those moments. Um, yeah, I, I enjoy them well. as well. Um, I think she works mm. well. She's a she's an interesting little character that leaves a smile on your face. And I know that um, scene with Santifoski's mother is kind of played for um, comedic value. There's also this voyeuristic element where she's being watched in the pub by this mysterious figure and that's something that we see kind of constantly throughout the film um voyeurism is a key theme here with this repeated image throughout the film of a voyeur watching from afar obscured often by wooden slats or trees or some other barrier um often when we see the voyeur we only see one of their eyes um there's quite a few instances where characters are seemingly obscured and we the audience aren't quite seeing the full picture this partly may be down to the quality of the VHS transfer, but I think it's also deliberate on Richie's part. It, it, yeah, it's one of those things where, again, I, I feel like in a remastered version, it would be easier to, to understand that. But I think there are points when the characters are purposely obscured. And that kind of creates uncertainty and ambiguity, mirroring Marco's mental state, in which he's unable to piece things together or see the full p- picture, if you will. And like I said, we have that repeated image of the voyeur looking on with only one eye exposed, which further serves to cement this idea of impaired vision or not being able to truly see what's going on. Again, highlighting Marco and Monica's inability to see the realities of their situation. Um, there's quite a nice moment early on in the film when Marco's woken up by the storm and we get a close-up shot as the lightning strikes and it exposes a painting on the wall of kind of a ghoulish demonic face. It's not entirely clear what kind of face it is, but something that looks quite sinister. And yeah. it almost suggests that evil dwells in, in Marco's own home. And it forges this connection that exists in the film between the weather and shifts um, in his mental state or ability to recall memories um, is perhaps a more apt way of describing it. But um, I suppose you argue that Richie perhaps labours as visual motif at times, but it certainly imbues the film with a certain sense of paranoia. This was the cemetery scene um, with the ex-gardener is another example of that kind of voyeurism taking place within the film um, and the suspenseful sequence where he is up to no good in the cemetery being watched by someone and there's some nice shots there like when he's when is, there's a close-up on his face and we see the the light um, moving in the wind slightly obscuring him again so again that's that motif of faces or eyes being partially obscured. Quite a lot of close-ups of, of ice in this film. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's a common, it's a recurring theme in in Jolly in general, but I think it was an extraordinary amount in this film. Yeah, I think I lost count of how many times it's used. Again, maybe a wee bit laboured, you might argue, but um, quite effective. Just yeah. it brings that kind of sinister edge to the film at points where it might be not languish, but languishing. But when it, there's kind of a relaxed feel, and then that just ups the the danger element where mm. you feel that these characters are always being watched. Yeah. The, the only other thing I also wanted to mention uh, before we move on towards towards discussing the ending is that this is actually the first film that we discussed that, that where there's a nightclub scene, isn't there? It's a staple of the genre, but I don't think we've discussed a film where there's a nightclub scene in so far, have we? Um, I don't think we have, actually. I think there's been... Parties, obviously, in like So Sweet, So Perverse, but not a nightclub scene. I always enjoy seeing those. Yeah, a nightclub scene's always very good, isn't it? And it's always kind of really reflective of the time and the music. And you get some interesting, well, like not interesting things like I'm being critical, but you get some nice like examples of dancing of the time and um, the visuals there. Yeah, more in the 60s films than the post-Argento ones, really. Yeah, I suppose it's to capture that swinging 60s type vibe, isn't it? Yeah. And then you get on to 
more of a disco scene towards the 80s. Because there's always some really um, good examples of nightclubs being used in these films. When, when now that you've mentioned the 80s, I always think of Contraband. Yeah. Um, a very good disco scene in it. <laughs> some great music by Fritzy as well. Very much so. So shall we discuss the ending a bit? Yeah, we can do that. Sorry, I just looked at my notes there and I, I, there's just one other thing I wanted to mention. It was it's just a really small thing, but it's a shot that I really like in the film where we have the car driving away at night after the murder of um, the, the ex-gardener. Yeah. And as the car drives away, it's like the kind of image almost bleeds down. Oh, yeah. It's that transition. Yeah. Uh, you're right. It's, it's, um, it's one that stands out. It's quite unusual because it doesn't t- that doesn't happen at any other point in the film. It's just that one moment where they do that. And it's quite creative and different. It yeah. struck me as quite a clever moment in the film. Yeah, almost like a comic book effect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that aligns it more with that kind of 60s style editing or 60s transitions that you sometimes see in these films. Yeah, so on to the ending. We've already talked a little bit about how Bert and Terry have conspired to first seduce Monica in in the scheme to make Marco sign over the power of attorney to Bert and then, then the plan is to drive Marco insane by thinking that he's killed Monica and that by bringing her back to life and then the scheme sort of backfires as Monica discovers the two lovers together and then she kills them off she's being stalked by an unseen Unseen. by an unseen person Mm -hmm. who turns out to be Marco yeah and then you get that shot of the leather gloves and her demise and then we cut next day to the police who have arrived at the villa to find out what exactly has happened and I think they attribute monica's death there and then is an accident don't they and it's it's the ending is quite ambiguous because Mm -hmm. you're not quite sure if marco's sort of lost his mind if he's forgotten about it or if it's a very calculated plan to to get his revenge absolutely yeah it's definitely open-ended and i think yeah purposely so so where some of the other plot points in the film don't necessarily make that much sense i think here this is very purposeful and it's quite nice for us as the audience to then ruminate on what's happened and wonder if marco really was culpable or not um and how yeah. much she really knew but you get the sense he's condemned anyway isn't he? he's back to the clinic and he's yeah it's either, prison, it's either prison or psychiatric clinic yeah so not great um yeah. <laughs> but it's quite it's quite quite a nice ending isn't it um I- I do like it. I do like it as well, yeah. Because it does seem like we've knocked this film quite a bit in terms of in terms of plot, but I do enjoy it. I think um, I enjoy the sixties thrillers and these mind games, and and obviously that is quite a lot of that here. It just feels like in the case of Death Carries a Cane that some small adjustments to the script would have made it a sharper thriller because I think there are there are some good actors here, and I think it could have worked slightly better with a bit of tweaking. Yeah, I mean, like like you say, it, it feels like we're being maybe a bit like critical here, but we both do really enjoy the film. It's just a case of it could be so much better with a bit more, like you know, some tighter editing and some changes to the script. Um, I overall, I wouldn't fault the performances of any of the actors involved. Like, I think there's some really good ideas, some nice set pieces, but yeah, it just needs to have a bit more cohesion to it. I think, and um, because like I was said, the ending's fairly effective, and we like the um, ambiguity there. Um, so yeah. it's just maybe some other plot points that needed tightening. But I think um, Philip Leroy does a good job, doesn't he, of that befuddled um, character with Marco at the end. Um, and his performance is good. I think some people think he's a bit overwrought or plays the confusion angle a bit too much. But I think that's understandable, considering what's happened. I think he does a good job, as does everybody else. I mean, the Elga and um, Rosanna as well, and Ivan, obviously. 
Yeah, and there's some nice physicality to their um, performances. I feel like they really um, imbue their characters and not just in kind of their acting per se, but, you know, just like their movements, like the way that Leroy's always kind of got his head up to his, um, not head up, his hand up to his head. And you can kind of tell a lot from those kind of physical performances as opposed to just what's in the script. We'll wrap this up in a little bit, but shall we talk a little bit about the production history first? Sorry, I just realized I just had one more bit about the ending. And then before um, they kind of reveal that Marco is in fact alive, and we have that wonderful suspenseful um, set piece where Monica returns to the villa. Um, and that's that very much the climactic scene of the piece. It takes on this wonderful gothic tone, but transposed to a modern setting, which is something I always really appreciate in a shadow. And the scene plays out against a raging storm with dramatic lightning illuminating the darkened villa. And we have the somber, like organ style music and um, playing from the modern hi-fi system as Monica cautiously investigates the villa. And we see like balls move on the pool table and there's a fag that burns in an ashtray um, indicating someone's just been there moments prior. Um, but also feels like there's something almost supernatural at work, again, invoking the Gothic. And even Monica's look here accentuates this idea in her floor-length sidrish gown with high collar that feels like an early 1970s take on Victoriana. And Monica's device, shown from the POV of the leather-gloved um, killer, uh, recalls the fifth chord in some ways. Um, and it's such a fantastic visual that's sure to appease shallow fans. And that's another standout moment, I would say. Is that climactic scene and how it comes to an end. Yeah, great observation about the, the gothic aspect of it. Also, the music, of course, like invokes the memory of, of uh, Guerreri's The Sweet Body of Deborah and Freda's Double Face and Fulci's One on Top of the Other, where a piece of music plays and it reminds the character of somebody that, that is supposed to be dead and, and buried. Yeah, that's a great connection, actually. Yeah, it's nicely used here. Like, it's good when music plays a plays a role like that in a film yeah right is that about it for the film yeah i think that's probably about yeah. it i mean i'm sure we could discuss the finite finite details of it and, and try and answer more questions about things that happen in the plot but i think we've covered most of what what we'd like to and we'll get into some other aspects with production history and production design and things like that so i don't know if you want to then now go into production history with the film yeah uh, the film was first reported on in on April 21st, 1971, and it was actually mentioned that Carol Baker and Philip Leroy would, had signed up for starring roles in a film called The Praying Mantis under the direction of Ritchie. And by the time it was reported on Next in June 1971, Carol Baker was out and the film had started shooting the same month with Elga Anderson in the lead instead. As you mentioned, it was a co-production between Eurovision Cinematografica a new production company based in Rome, headed by Carlo Bessi and Orfeo Produciones Cinematográficas in Madrid. But it's, it seems like it was a fairly hurried production, shooting in June, July 1971, later on released in August. So it was it had a quick turnaround. A trade ad in Variety, published on September 3rd, 1971, mentions that English title had been changed to The Yellow Circle and claims the film was one of the best Italian suspense thrillers of the current season. It was shot by Cecilio Panuaga, who would go on to shoot uh, Mario Bava's Lease and the Devil, and it was edited by Amadeo Giomini. As we've mentioned a couple of times, the only copy available at the moment is a fairly low-quality VHS, so it really doesn't do the film's visuals any favours. And it's a nice looking film, but it it's not 
perhaps known for his visual flair and neither the cinematography or the way that it's edited makes it really stand out. There are some aspects about the visuals that are of interest, but I'm sure you will touch upon those in a short while. Yeah, I assume you've got some stuff to say about the production design here. I do. I do have quite a lot to say, surprisingly, about the production design versus uh, talking about the film itself. But um, yeah, firstly, it's really interesting what you've uncovered there. I mean, you can certainly see that Lindsay Carol Baker influence here in this film. Um, so yeah. that's it's I, it's interesting to hear that Carol Baker was originally attached to it because you can see her in it. But also at the same time, I feel like maybe it wouldn't it wouldn't be such a big role for her compared to some of those similar films that she was in. Um, certainly less of a part a female part here but yeah I think that like from what you said about the quick turnaround that seems to be evident in the film and I think yeah if they did have more time it would be of a better quality but it certainly feels rushed in places I'll get into the production design (laughs) and the setting so I'm not actually entirely sure where Cross Current was actually filmed Um, usually you get an idea of where but I'm not 100% sure if it's Italy or Spain you mean yeah sorry yeah should have made that clear yeah I wasn't sure if it's Italy or Spain um, yeah, no, could, neither mine. The landscape looks like it could be either. So unfortunately, mm. we don't really have that information to hand. Much of Cross Current's action takes place at the home of the Bredas, a modern mid-century villa located off the coast. Of course, we don't know if it's off the coast <laughs> in Italy or Spain. <laughs> and due to the quick turnaround time of these productions, uh, many of the chalets of the period feature a primary location, usually a residence without much variation. But Cross Current is interspersed with enough alternative locales to keep the film's primary environment from feeling stagnant. And whilst much of the film occurs in the Breda's residence, the location is kept interesting via subtle environmental changes, such as the shifts between day and night, but also via the changing weather. By day, the villa is a sun-drenched, peaceful coastal location, but by night it turns into a shadowy, isolated, storm-swept villa that takes on a threatening, ominous feel. Early on in the film, the weather is positioned as an influence on Marco's mental state, with changes in the weather, such as storms creating headaches and causing confusion. The storm on the first night of Marco's return seemingly causes memory loss and further fuels his bouts of amnesia. So despite the limited settings of Cross Current, we see how these sorts of environmental changes keep things interesting, whilst further serving to highlight thematic ideas in the plot. Naturally, we have this intriguing juxtaposition between the hazy, sun-soaked daytime shots of the villa and the ominous nighttime scenes that have a sort of gothic flavour. This also extends to the interiors themselves, which also reflect the environmental changes taking place outside. For example, in the daytime, the villa feels very much like a bright, spacious space for entertaining, an ultra-sleek, stylish home with all the mod cons one could need. It has a relaxing, holiday-like feel, but by night the open space feels threatening, where anyone could be lurking. Design features such as a spiral staircase, mezzanine level, and use of screens feel like the perfect hiding place for a mysterious assailant, and this idea of voyeurism that we have previously discussed is accentuated via these various hiding places. Cross Current's final climatic scene with Monica reminds me somewhat of Luigi Bazzoni's The Fifth Chord, which also features a climatic scene that occurs in a modern mid-century home that's imbued with elements of the Gothic horror. Yet the crumbling Victorian mansion has been replaced with modernist architecture. Alongside the Breda's house, we also see Bert's apartment, where a pivotal scene takes place, as previously mentioned. Bert's home is similar to the Breda's home in that it's a stylish late 60s slash early 1970s affair. The Breda's villa has a fairly light colour palette, with white as a dominant colour, but Bert's apartment takes this design concept further, with his entire home taking on a bright white colour palette with matching furnishings and decor. 
This bleached dark clinical but sleek look naturally conjures comparison to Argento's Tenebrae, but also recalls Emilio Miraculous The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave, um, which we previously mentioned. Um, and in these three examples, we see the effectiveness of staging a bloody murder scene in a white room, the vibrant bloody reds feeling more visceral when displayed on a white canvas. But alongside the abundance of white and bleached out colours and cross current, there's also some nice use of colour throughout the film, with the heavy usage of white interspersed with pops of orange and blue, which gives the film a crisp, refreshing feel that mirrors the film's coastal setting. And if you'll indulge a few more of my comments on the film set design, um, there's a very nice, there's, sorry, there's a nice, very late 60s, early 70s um, circular motif that runs throughout the film, which is quite interesting after you said that that was going to be one of the titles, what was it, The Yellow Circle? Um, yeah yeah so that's interesting that you said that um and we have you know orange bubble style helmets worn by the racers so we have those wonderful circular nightclub mirrors and that skylight in the breda bathroom where we see the black gloves come over it which is quite a striking image um yeah, fantastic scene it's really a really wonderful one probably should have mentioned it earlier but yeah that's another really nice one um and the scenes in which these circular motifs feature are in my opinion some of the most interesting um, there's some rather stylish set dressing throughout the film and it's hard not to fixate on the numerous light fixtures present in the Breda home as well as in Bert's apartment. We also have some intriguing artwork on display from the Harlequin clown style paintings in the living room to the previously mentioned goblin monster painting in Marco's bedroom. Bert's home features a rather beautiful piece of artwork that looks like glass shards slash metal fragments and in my overly analytical mind I'm taking that um, as an example of the shattering of Monica's reality in the scene. <laughs> Just tenuous. Um, but yeah, for no, those... I love it. <laughs> yeah, and for those um, that keep abreast of the production design um, of Italian cinema during this period, you won't be surprised to learn that Flavio Mogherini served as Cross Current's art director. Mogherini was responsible for some of my favourite looks in Italian genre cinema of the 60s and 70s, and I've recently completed something about this very topic, which I will be sharing soon. So yeah, that's my overly long bit on the production design but there's there's a lot of interesting visuals here so it's worth kind of commenting on some of those motifs and interesting bits of visual flair certainly is i mean as we've said before that sometimes even if these films the central murder mysteries aren't really all that captivating or they're flawed there's there's other things to appreciate and in this film the the production design is certainly one of those things. I mean, it's a it's a great looking villa uh, with some beautiful uh, interior decoration that I really appreciated, and that's one of the things that I'd love to see in a cleaned up edition. Yeah, I think those um, elements would really sing out um, in a remastered version. So fingers crossed. Yeah. The music score was written by Giorgio Gaslini, and it features a few sixties sounding beat tracks and some very beautiful romantic themes as well with wordless female vocals. And the more dramatic cues certainly brings to mind Morricone's atonal soundtracks that he did for Argento. The score was released on CD by Swedish label uh, Fan du Siècle. I'm not sure if the CD is out of print or not, but the score is now available on Spotify for those who want to give it a spin. Very good. As I mentioned, the film received its censorship visa at the end of August 1971 when it was released. One review from Cinematographic Reports called it an extremely complicated and far from clear story, but enlivened by an effective suspense. And I suppose that sums it up fairly well. In a year where Italian cinemas were fairly crowded with thrillers, this film did fairly mediocre box office, making $232 million, about the same as Fernando de Leo's Slaughter Hotel, but not as much as, for example, Mauricio 
Mauricio Lucidi's The Designated Victim, which made 351 million lira. Crosscurrent would go on to be Richie's only Jalo. He would go on working as an assistant director for a few years, directing second unit on Lucio Fulci's White Fang in 1973 and its follow-up Challenge to White Fang in 1974. He would also go on to direct 20 more films in different genres, often under the pseudonym. For an Italian genre film director, Richie directed an unusual number of films aimed at children and families like his children's western bad kids of the west but he also directed some post-apocalypse and several adventure films most of these were mod- modestly budgeted genre films but some of them made fairly decent returns like his white fang to the rescue which was one of Maurizio Merli's first leads and like many of the white fang sequels it did well at the box office making nearly 700 million lira he also made a number of films set around the Bermuda Triangle and Bermuda Cave of the Sharks was one of his most successful films making a billion at the box office uh, he died on March 9th 2014 in Rome 86 years old it's quite a varied career then that he had yeah there's from from all sorts of genres i've i've only seen a handful of them i'd say i'd seen about a fourth or something yeah i've not seen many they don't stand out for their quality i mean i i do enjoy cross current i think his um, mafia film the big family is quite good but the others are quite mediocre to be honest yeah and that's probably a fair comment to say. Just one of the more middling directors of the time. Yeah. The, a typical journeyman dire- director, like many of the Italian genre film di- directors who worked in all sorts of genres. But I mean, Cross Current is, is not without interest, but it's not a film that stands out in the genre. No, I think that's a fair assessment of it, to be honest with you. Um, it's enjoyable, but I don't think it's really going to feature in most people's top 10 list. That's not to say that you wouldn't have a fun time like sitting watching it um, and revisiting it even, but yeah, it doesn't perhaps stand out as much as some of the others. But saying that, we'd probably be the first in line if somebody decided to release this on Blu-ray. No, absolutely. Yeah. As I said, we, we both really enjoy it. It's just a case of it's one of those ones that has a few issues and it kind of impedes your, not that we would necessarily rank these films, but yeah, it would impede kind of its ranking per se. Yeah. So should I deliver some final thoughts on Cross Current while we're here. <laughs> Please do. So whilst Cross Current certainly doesn't break the Jago mould, it's a nice example of a Jago that seeks to blend the Italian diabolic inspired thrillers of the 1960s with the more psychoanalytical fare of the post-bird of the Crystal Plumage years. It features a competent cast of actors familiar to fans of Eurocult, and fans of Leroy Anderson and Razumov are sure to enjoy their turns here. Whilst Cross Current's twists and turns are perhaps overly telegraphed, they are still enjoyable and keep proceedings lively and interesting. Richie turns out some impressive set pieces and makes the most of his locales, utilising environmental changes to keep things visually interesting. With a tighter script and some modest changes, Cross Current could arguably be a far superior Jago. Out of all the films we've discussed so far in Fragments of Fear, Cross Current is the one that would probably benefit the most from an upgrade. The degradation on the print currently circulating is to the detriment of the film and a restored version would help with the film's reappraisal. To end this, we'd just like to give a quick mention to a couple of our friends of the show. Our patron, Jeremy Ritchie's Solidar magazine featured an interview with Rachel and me in the in the latest issue. So please head over to Amazon and pick that up if you're interested in reading about us and lots of other interesting subjects. Also, please follow Jeremy's page for his upcoming book on Sylvia Crystal from Emmanuel to Chabrol. Sylvia Crystal in the 70s, which is tentatively out next summer. You can give his 
Twitter, Sylvia Crystal 77 or his Instagram, Sylvia Crystal Book, a follow. I'm sure he would appreciate that. And thank you very much for featuring us in Soledad. Yeah, thank you. We're really grateful to Jeremy's support because, yeah, he kind of was a really early champion of the podcast and really done his best to help us out and give us a platform so we really appreciate that yeah we certainly do we also had a little competition in the last episode where you had the chance to win david sodergren's latest jello inspired novel dead girl blues and the lucky winners of the books are jeff oates and cult house so congratulations well guys done. well done head over to david's twitter or instagram page paperbacks and pugs and give him a follow so that's that's about it for this episode isn't it we'll be back with a new patron episode sometimes in mid-july where we'll discuss dare mcnab's irish set neo jallo the three sisters yeah looking forward to that one so if you want to support us in other ways than pledging to us on patreon um you can head on over to itunes and give us a rating and a review and we'd really appreciate that and as always you can follow us on social media facebook slash fragments pod instagram you can find us on fragments pod or you can reach us on twitter rachel underscore nisbet or senior ward or you can email us at fragmentspod at gmail.com and as always, we'd like to thank the wonderful Ozarks for allowing us to use their cover of the theme from Seven Bloodstained Orchids, and that's available to listen to and purchase via their bandcamp. CastleOzarks.com I think that wraps everything up for this month's episode. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed our discussion on Cross Current, and we eagerly anticipate hearing your thoughts on the film. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to joining you again next month with our take on another lesser-known shadow. Thank you, and goodbye. Bye.